Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. And as always, I am joined by... Uh, Bob Bazenko in Niles, Ohio. Looking forward to today's show with um, our favorite guest, who's been on more than anybody else. It's like being uh, the most uh, frequent cover of the Time magazine or the most frequent guest on the Johnny Carson show. It's that big. You're like <laughs> st- our Steve Martin to our Saturday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I need to like my little headband with the arrow. <laughs> and so, folks, today, if you haven't already guessed, we're talking to Sarah Coster. Uh, community health worker, professor at Samuel Merritt University, nurse practitioner. And we're going to be talking today about COVID and the latest surge. Uh, The U.S. has once again shattered its own world record for coronavirus infections. There were 172,000 infections and nearly 2,000 deaths on Wednesday alone. Uh, We're seeing an exponential kind of explosion of this uh, deadly virus right now. And you know the US is moving into a humanitarian catastrophe as the virus continues to spread exponentially and hospitals are being pushed to capacity. So today we're gonna be talking about this uh, dire issue and we're excited that Sarah is here with us today. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me back once again. Yep. And just to kind of kick off with the questions um, you know, I just said that on Wednesday, there are 172,000 infections, 2,000 deaths. Uh, California has joined Texas in over a million infections. Cities like Chicago are shutting down. New York is closing its schools. The Bay Area, I believe, is retracting its public restaurant openings, which had recently begun to phase in. And so we're descending into this dire situation. Just to kind of start off, what do you see as as the outcome like, is it too late? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, basically you said on, on Wednesday, we had about 2000 deaths that's held true. Today's Friday. It's been about 2000 deaths a day across the country and, um, and overall across in the last seven to 10 days across the entire country, we've seen about a 30% increase in cases in some communities. We're seeing a 50% increase in cases and, a 50% increase in hospitalizations. So this is, uh, this is, it's not, unfortunately, it's not surprising. Um, and, and I feel like it's deja vu. I feel like it's from one of the last conversations we had on a previous episode. As soon as you start opening things up again, and people are sort of flaunting the masking laws, and we're having people back in school, and restaurants are opening, and people are just coming into more closer contact with each other, then you see an increase in cases. It's um, it's unfortunately not surprising. And I think we're seeing a lot of, um, in addition to some things opening back up again, we're seeing a lot of message fatigue, which is not a, an uncommon thing in public health, where at a certain point, if you say over and over and over again, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask, or wear a condom, wear a condom, wear a condom, initially you see a pretty high adoption of that messaging and of that guidance. And then after a little while, folks in the community who are being heavily targeted with that message get this kind of fatigue and you see a drop off in how they actually um, 
are, are following that guidance. So I think it's, it's not only individuals are, are fatigued from the quarantine, from the messaging, uh, stressed about, you know, not only are they, uh, have, they have job insecurities and things like that. Now we're going to the holiday season, which is really tough time to have job insecurity, but then also sort of federally and at the state level, we have conflicting messaging uh, in, in how we're supposed to behave. It, you know, I'm curious in your state and, and uh, both the governor and, and Pelosi have recently been kind of, you know, nabbed, um, violating their own, you know, their own scolding and their own laws. And, um, you know, without having these people kind of take it, it seems like they don't take it seriously, right? They're telling everybody else to take it seriously and they don't. And does that kind of filter down and, and create even more kind of skepticism about this whole thing? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen this for months now with the Trump administration not not wearing masks and how that has has definitely affected how people behave and, and who people are listening to and what behaviors they're adopting. Uh, it's even harder when you have someone who's saying, oh, you should socially distance and wear a mask, and then they're caught on camera not following that advice, right? It, it feels very much like a slap in the face, especially when it's a person of relative privilege who is, doesn't have to go into work and serve food and distribute groceries and, and doesn't have those kinds of economic pressures on them, saying, wear a mask, socially distance, stay at home, uh, but I'm going to go out to this dinner, this fancy dinner party. And I'm not going to socially distance. Um, at the French laundry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, at the very least, it's incredibly tone deaf and, and inconsiderate of the incredible pressures that people in California are experiencing, talking about Governor Newsom. Um, but at the most, yes, I think it does, it does conflate messaging and it can create some confusion and some, uh, some you know, further messaging around not needing to wear a mask or not needing to socially distance. You know, the, the shows we've done with you, I think in the future, somebody can look at these as part of a history of COVID because we've, you know, the first time we talked, it was pretty much, you know, pretty much at the outset. Um, it, you know, I mean, we can kind of say it seemed expected that the numbers would go up, but what accounts do you think for this big expansion that's happened fairly rapidly? I've, again, I've read several different things. Some say it's people going to bars and restaurants, or it's college kids on campus, or it's just people who are being, you know, careless, or it's weddings and things like that. Is there any kind of one or two things that really stand out? Well, I mean, I think it, it depends, uh, you know, based on where you are, which state you're in, and what's been opened up at, at which times. I think uh, schools, university campuses, and other schools are uh, probably can be um, the roots of, of a huge amount of spread. I mean, Schools for, for little ones uh, have, have always been a really contentious issue. Are we going to open up the schools? Because traditionally, it's not the, the, the kids in our community that are showing up in the ICUs, right? Um, and so I think there's been a lot more pressure to open up uh, the schools for younger children. But kids still represent about 10% of the cases that we see in our communities. They might not be getting as acutely ill, but they're definitely contracting the virus. They're definitely testing positive and they're definitely then able to spread to other people. So I, I think that schools can't be discounted as potential areas of spread. And then of course, uh, you know, sporting events, I think that everyone has, has done their best to try to, nobody can be in the stands. And last time we talked, we talked about this, that there's just, but there's no way. I mean, and I, you know, I, I like watching uh, sports. And so I was, I, when I watch, you know, Monday night football and everything, I, you know, you see the players are, 
when they're on the field, they don't have masks on, but then even when they're off the field and the coaches and everything, they, they're pulling their masks down, they're hugging each other, they're doing all these things. So, so that definitely has caused some spread. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because we have these major life events like weddings and baby showers and, and all these things that we want to have and we want to participate in. And oftentimes we've spent a lot of money to, to prepare for, uh, but, but that is a real, it's a real risk right now. It's a real risk of spread. You know, and, and this week is Thanksgiving. And mm-hmm. so public opinion poll I saw from last week said that 40% of people were still planning large family gatherings. And so, you know, if you have a big family dinner for Thanksgiving, can you expect a more dire gathering, you know, for Christmas, uh, like a funeral or something like that? Yeah. Well, so I think, I think a lot of people have pushed back really hard against some public health professionals who have basically urged people to cancel Thanksgiving. That's a really uncomfortable message to give. It's also an uncomfortable message to receive, but I, I don't think it's alarmist at all for us to consider that um, or to have it over Zoom or something like that, which is, I know, not as satisfying as getting together with the people that we love. I think there's two things to consider. There's one is, are we going to have the big dinner together and watching football and all of that? Uh, The second question is, how far are we going and how are we going to travel to said dinner? Right. So if I am sheltering in place in the Bay Area and I can get tested and then, you know, have one person come over and have dinner with me, we've both been tested that's a very different risk versus getting on a plane and going to hang out with grandma and aunts and uncles and cousins and all of that. So it's, um, but yeah, it's, I'm not personally celebrating Thanksgiving in, in a traditional way. I'm not going to be seeing anyone except for over zoom. Of course, I've been really restricting myself pretty much more aggressively than other people because I have had contact with folks who are ill and do so regularly, but I, I don't, yeah. I don't recommend it. It's not worth it. To be a little more, I mean, if we could, I don't know if you could be more specific, speculative, I guess, um, you know, saying, you know, don't, don't celebrate Thanksgiving almost sounds like teaching abstinence, right? You know, that kind of gives you the impression that you have to stay home. And you, I mean, what, you know, most people aren't going to do that. You know, even people who are kind of, you know, being pretty careful about this. So is there kind of a line where you can do it more reasonably safely than, than not, like, you know, immediate family or just four or five people or something like that. Not one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I am a huge fan of harm reduction. So yeah, Yeah, abstinence only doesn't usually work with anything and COVID is is no different. Um, So yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we can do to reduce the risk. Um, If we're going to get together with other people, I think trying to get tested uh, reasonably soon before we're going to have, have that interaction is good to, to say, okay, I can be sure that within the last five days or so, I have not, you know, I'm not, I don't have the virus. I've heard of some people who are taking people's temperature when they walk in the door at thanks at the Thanksgiving dinner, which is probably going to feel like a pretty bizarre thing, but I don't think it's actually out of the question. Again, not everyone launches symptoms the same way. And so just taking a person's temperature doesn't act automatically tell you, you know, if they, if they don't uh, have a fever, that doesn't automatically tell you they don't have the virus, but it can be some sort of a marker. Um, I think if it's at all possible, eating outside is a really good idea. So if you can, I don't know, if it's cold, like maybe having, having your Thanksgiving dinner 
really early in the day so that you can eat outside would be a really nice option and spacing yourself around the table um, and then wearing a mask when you're not eating as much as possible. Obviously, uh, hand sanitizer, you know, when you're, the virus is killed by, you know, if, uh, in, when you cook food, um, but if you're going to be serving anything that's cold or, or chilled or not, not coming out of the straight out of the oven, um, I would say to, uh, wear a mask while you're preparing that and handling that and trying to avoid kind of buffet style. You know, we typically will do like sort of buffet style serving with a lot of these parties. So trying to avoid that. If you have to be inside, maybe even just opening a couple of windows can increase air circulation a bit. So yeah, there's, there's some good harm reduction techniques that we can use. And then I think Zoom is our, is our best harm reduction technique, <laughs> if, that's, if that's possible and palatable to, to you. I'm kind of curious, um, you know, we're hearing about the spikes in the Midwest, for example, you know, I think North Dakota actually maybe has the worst, worst COVID rate on the planet right now. In other places, it's, it's, it's also pretty bad. But, you know, how, what are you seeing in your community work here in the Bay Area? Like, I, I've been reading about spikes in Alameda County, but, you know, is it, is it the, the seven counties here in the Bay Area have, you know, taken a lot of precautions when it were, I think, the first place to go into shelter in place back in March, which also is, you know, led to a, I feel like there's a culture around it. I can just go walk around my neighborhood and people just walking down the street wearing their masks. And so what is the kind of coronavirus surge looking like in the Bay Area right now? Is it, is it as clearly it's not significant as it's in places like North Dakota and South Dakota, but I'm just wondering. Yeah, it's, I think, so I, you know, you and I, Scott, live in very different uh, neighborhoods in Alameda County. I see fewer and fewer people wearing masks in my neighborhood, frankly. And I have had in the communities that I work in with students and as a clinician, um, I've had more and more people coming into me without wearing masks, um, not wanting to wear a mask. I've had to shut down recently a couple of clinical rotations because we've had community members test positive and we had to really because people are, you know, I'm working with folks who live in very close quarters uh, in motels and uh, these sort of cabin encampments. And so um, when we get a positive case, we need to really quickly jump in there and contain it. And so I think Alameda County has been doing really well to try to do that. And their, their contact tracing system has some flaws for sure, but I think in general, we've been really doing well to address uh, the surge, but there is a surge for sure. Um, Newsom was just a couple of days ago was just on, and this is California overall, but was, was definitely echoing all the same things that many other states are saying, which is that we have seen a 50% increase in the last, uh, I think it was like 10 days, both in positive cases and in hospitalizations, which is an important, important piece of information because if we were just seeing a 50% increase in positive cases, then we could say, oh, we're doing a really great job testing people. We're actually, maybe we're increasing our testing ability and we're actually capturing these cases, but we're also seeing an increase in the hospitalizations, which means that people are also, yes, we're doing a good job capturing that, but also people are getting a lot, or many people are getting sick or more people are getting sick. Uh, and I think at that time he was saying that there were only something like oh, it's 2000 some ICU beds 
available across the state, which is striking. And the state as large as California, oh my, that's just 2000? Wow. Uh, it was like 2000 and some, 2000 and some change, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Like, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, without COVID, that's that's crazy. Um, yeah, and, and speaking of, I mean, speaking of that, ICU beds are not just for people with COVID. We're talking about like all ICU beds, not just like COVID to specific. I mean, absolutely. Also, I mean, my wow. my next question was actually, how is this in, impacting other community health issues? You know, beyond COVID, because there's got to be some yeah. sort of, you know, problem happening there as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I, my, you know, my role is primary care. So the, the main barrier that I'm seeing is that what happens is when you have a staff member or a clinician or something like that at one of these community health clinics test positive for COVID, there's this real quick lockdown. And then when I call to try to then get my patient referred for a pap smear or get them in for their dental care or get them in to have their, you know, their metformin uh, prescription, um, you know, rewritten and, and things like that, then they say, oh, we're not taking any new, any patients for a couple of days because they're trying to get a hold of this, this new case and get everyone tested and make sure it's safe for patients to come into this clinic. So it really is, is creating even more of a bottleneck in getting people into, into certain kinds of really important primary care in the work that I'm doing, trying to get folks who are exiting homelessness and are at particular risk, trying to get them into that kind of a system. Um, and then certainly, you know, in our ERs and urgent cares, they're, they're getting um, overwhelmed at, at the same time. And, and yeah, Scott, like you said, the, the ICU beds are not just for COVID cases, right? We have heart failure, we have COPD, we have kidney disease and all these other things that, that can land someone into a really acute state that where they need to have this full support. And, and we're just, we're losing the, the real estate we need to do that because of COVID. You know, and the first time you were on, I remember we talked about this as a, as a larger systemic failure of, of the healthcare system. And I mean, it's just even more um, clear, you know, I think than ever. I want to go back to, because uh, the first time we talked, the first couple of times, actually, one of the big issues was the availability of testing. Is that now kind of kind of taken care of? Like if, if you need to get tested, you can and nope. Nope. That's not what I'm seeing out here. I, um, I don't know. Yeah, I just wondered. Yeah. No, I mean, it's better than it was before, for sure. And I think that there have been some real improvements in, in both the manufacturing speed and also the delivery of those, of those materials and everything. Uh, the accuracy of the tests have also, has also improved. So definitely moving in the right direction, but no, this is, you know, if we had a true surveillance, public health surveillance system, we would be doing a lot more testing. Um, what we're doing right now is kind of this like some community-based and some clinic and hospital-based testing, but we're really not doing a true public health surveillance program at this point. We're not testing enough people. And part of that is, uh, is because, yeah, the, the tests just aren't as, as available as they should be. Jeez. That's after, what is this, eight months now? Seven, eight months? Jeez. Yep. Yeah, there's a, in Ohio where I am now, there's Rite Aid has free testing. So mm -hmm. I actually did one a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I got there 15 minutes early and I was done in like four minutes, but mm -hmm. then I was talking to a niece in Chicago. They don't have right age. And she said, it's actually very difficult, more, far more difficult there than it would be here. So, you know, yeah. I, and I think that's, you see in some communities are doing really well and they have either the companies the private companies have bought up a bunch of this testing and are offering it for free. Or, you know, for example, out here, Kaiser has a very easy system. It sounds like for, you can just walk in and, and get your test and it's great. 
but people who have other kinds of insurance coverage or no insurance coverage are having to travel great distances and wait in long lines. And, um, you know, and that's, that's pre presenting barriers to accessing that care. Kaiser is actually my insurance, and I recently talked to my doctor about COVID, and he said that one of the things that Kaiser offers its members, if you're privileged enough to have Kaiser, is that like there's mm -hmm. no charges, even ex even for extended hospital stays with COVID. Mm. That they've been wow. they've been doing it all pro bono, I guess you could say, you know. But you know, there's going to be one day where we all wake up and it's just going to be gone, right? So we all know <laughs> that. We all know that that's just coming, right? Because that's what the what's the, what our our soon to be ex president tells us often. Um, was it, it was the day after the election? I thought, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. Why are why are I, we I'm still waiting. even talking about it? Yeah, it's I'm crazy. waiting. I, I yeah, it's been what eighteen days now or seventeen days. So, yeah. um, but you know that I mean the the biggest issue I think, and, and we talked about this at the beginning too, is. You know, there that, that I'm sure you've seen it. It's all over. It's viral. That anguished interview with the the nurse was it in North Dakota? You know, who said that uh, their last dying breath? People are still in denial. You know, I have lung cancer. I have something else. It's not COVID. COVID isn't real. As they're dying, like, I I got nothing. I have. I don't understand that. Um, have, have you ever seen anything like that? That kind of just hardcore level? I mean, that's way worse. I think than anti vaxxers, isn't it? I mean, this is, seems to be fairly widespread. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's startling. And, and it's hard to, it's hard to understand why it's happening. And it's hard, I, it's hard for me to, um, you know, putting myself in that person's shoes, right? I, I don't know what that feels like. And, and so that's, but I, but I have seen, you know, when I was working in, um, in Southern Africa and Zambia, I was working with tuberculosis and HIV, and slight, you know, slightly different, very different culture and, and different kinds of circumstances. But, but yeah, I had, I had people who were literally, and, and this is a country where we do, a, there's a lot of, of, of uh, HIV testing, things like that. I literally had a patient who was wheeled into me in a wheelbarrow, um, emaciated, very, very ill and dying of AIDS. And his family would not acknowledge the fact that that's why he was dying. Uh, because of the stigma that's attached to it, because of all of the beliefs that are attached to it. So I think with COVID, uh, I think that there people are just so hardcore, you know, attached to the culture that comes with COVID denial, and and what that means and that identity. And so it's not at all uh, uncommon. And I, yeah, it's not uncommon to see, and it's very very challenging to try to to address in public health. So Scott, do you want to uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers how to learn more about the Green and Red Podcast and how to support us? Thanks for listening to the Green and Red Podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link and then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron please go to patreon.com forward slash green red podcast and join the the large and growing donor base that we have thanks thank you share everything too and uh tell your friends something else that struck me in, in uh the cleveland clinic isn't far from here they've they've had 800 people st staff there test pov and i think the mayo clinic is close to a thousand and you know i i get that on one hand these people are close to it every day, but at the same time, they should be 
you know, Cleveland Clinic and Mayo are world class. You know, I would assume that they would have, you know, PPE and all kinds of protocol in place. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of scary that that it's that widespread among people who, even though they're exposed to it more often, also should have, you know, kind of access to better precautions to take care of it. Does that, in, you know, just kind of indicate just how virulent this thing is or is it just, I don't know, is there any, any meaning to it beyond that? Well, yeah, I mean, we're still looking at, I, I mentioned in the beginning that R0, which is the reproduction number, and how many, if I'm infected, how many people can I then go out into the community and infect? And it's a very high R0 as compared to a lot of other viruses uh, between uh, three and three and five, or, you know, something like that. So, so yeah, it's very virulent. It's very transmissible. There's no way to, of knowing whether these folks who tested positive at these clinics, maybe also, maybe they had a exposure in the community. Maybe it wasn't in the clinic, right? Um, but yeah, I, I've been a little, because, so my, my students are in community placements with me. And then now that they're also in hospital placements to do their final kind of acute medical training before they graduate. And so I've been trying to figure out from different hospitals and clinics and things like that, like how often are nurses and clinicians tested? Uh, do people, like, what are the protocols around this? Because if my students are being tested in the hospital frequently, you know, how do I then safely introduce them into community settings uh, and make sure that my community members are, are safe? And so uh, there really aren't any universal guidelines around this. Each agency is going to make their own guidelines based on availability testing, based on staffing issues, all these different things. And at this point, a lot of hospitals and clinics are only testing folks when they've had a, a known exposure or are symptomatic, right? So that means that you're not capturing a lot of cases. And then, you know, you, you have high transmissibility. And so yeah. shifting the topic a little bit, it's been on the news that Pfizer has come out with a potential vaccine that showed more than 90% effectiveness. Uh, Moderna if I'm pronouncing that right, has said that they have tests of a vaccine that's 95% effective. Mm-hmm. And so what are your thoughts on these corporate announcements on, a, on progress with vaccines that they, they say could you know, be ready by the end of the year, or that they could have a billion doses of it ready next year? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's really exciting to see this. But the thing to keep in mind is this is the, this is the company that's telling us this efficacy data, Yeah. right? So it's Pfizer's coming out with something essentially saying, hey, my Toyota Camry is, you know, 98% of the time won't stall in the middle of the freeway, right? And we can probably, we can probably believe them, uh, but this hasn't been peer reviewed and this has not gone through the FDA advisory committee. So uh, I don't want to be a downer about it. I'm very excited about it, but I, you know, the top scientists in our government or at FDA and uh, Fauci and all those people have not seen the efficacy data at this point. And so I'm not, I'm not hanging my hat on anything until I hear from them. Um, They, yeah, so, so, and then there was a third pharmaceutical company. I can't remember the name of it though, um, who came out with some very promising data, I think yesterday or today, and they specifically tested their vaccine in much older adults, saying mm-hmm. that it's very effective. So there's lots of good stuff that is, is potentially good stuff that's coming out. But yeah, until the FDA advisory committee meets, and you know, they'll, they'll, the plan is that they will be meeting at least to look at the Pfizer vaccination in early to mid-December, 
but I think it's important to understand that when the FDA advisory committee meets, this is not like a, okay, we're meeting this one day and we're coming up with a, a decision. This could be weeks long before they like just really teasing through all the data and really digging through it for weeks. I mean, my other question would be is like, you know, this is an FDA that's at this point will still be under the Trump administration, you know, and I, I, I don't know anything about the FDA advisory committee, but if it's a Trump appointee, it could be someone who was his like a donor in Minnesota's, you know, doctor who got appointed to this position, or, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's someone who he cut a deal with for to help build a casino in Atlantic city is kind of where I place these people like in, in the level of responsibility and accountability. And, and so do we really trust that any, any agency right now under the Trump administration to be responsible on this, especially with as much as he's been, as was pushing the, the vac, I mean, the election's over and he's lost, but you know, right. he, he's still, he, he, he wants to win here so he can come back in 2024. Right. So. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting. Um, yeah. Somebody choice. suggested today, they call it the Trump vaccine to, uh, you know, ameliorate and to mollify him. So. Yeah. So um, I think, so the FDA advisory committee, and I think that I, I mentioned this before is made up of, um, of non-politically appointed and non-pharmaceutical representing or you know, representatives. These are all, all scientists who have served on the committee for many, many years and are nonpartisan folks. So I think the, the concern that I have in terms of political influence in this process is, as I mentioned before, Secretary Azar, uh, the Secretary of the Human, uh, Health and Human Services has said that he needs to sign off on anything that the FDA recommends. He is a, tr a Trump appointee. And so, and um, yeah, and yeah, former CEO of Eli Lilly, uh, you know, loves to hike up prices for, for drugs uh, without, uh, you know, without regard. He, he's one of the and, cabinet members who has come out and said that he's looking forward to a second Trump administration, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so although he, today Trump actually was talking about drug prices and he seemed to admit that he's lost because he said, these guys are going to raise drug prices on you. You wait. They're not going to be like me or something like that. So I think he, he's kind of seeing the writing on the wall despite Azar and Navarro and Haley McEnany or whatever her name is. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. No, I mean, <laughs> it's <laughs> hard to keep track. Well, yeah. you know, we got like six more weeks or eight more weeks to, <laughs> to, to do this. I know we're all going to we're all going to have so much time on our hands once we're not um, yeah. making, having to make these jokes and everything. Um, no, there's going to be plenty of other jokes to make about yeah. politicians for sure. Uh, but yeah, I think, I don't think that, I don't personally feel any kind of fear that the FDA advisory committee is going to come out with something that is not, uh, you know, that the individuals involved in that decision-making process are not going to be ethical and, and, true in their recommendations. My fear is that those recommendations will then not be communicated adequately or will be blocked or something like that by HHS um, or, or accelerate or, you know, so if someone says, actually, we don't want to approve this vaccine, then Azar, especially in the Trump uh, administration is very motivated to say, no, 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 we're going to do it anyway, you know, and like really pushing for these things. So I think the possibility of, of the process being contaminated is there, but I think it, it comes from other uh, federal agencies, not necessarily from within the advisory committee, if that makes sense. Yeah, it seems that as a, as a obviously I'm not a medical pro professional, although on Google, I, I can pretend to be. Um, 
it seems like there are kind of two major risks. One is that a vaccine won't work. And then the other one, will be, there will be actually bad side effects. Is there more to it than that? Or and, and how long does it usually take to know once it hits general population, like if it's not working or if there's something wrong with it and people are actually getting sicker? Well, so, yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit before about how because the disease prevalence and the the risk of exposure for COVID is so high in our general com communities, we don't have to test the vaccine on as many people in order to get good quality prevalence data or, um, sorry, efficacy and safety data as we would with a disease that's much more infrequent or has a lower risk of exposure. So it's not like an, a sexually transmitted infection. You know, you have to have people who are engaging in certain sexual behaviors in order to expose them to the, to the uh, virus. With this, it's just, you just walk around and you're potentially exposed, right? So we, we don't need as, as high uh, numbers to test a vaccine. The challenge, one of the challenges with this vaccine is that it's only been tested in reasonably healthy adults at this point. And that's standard for a lot of, a lot of uh, vaccinations and a lot of medications in general is that usually the first trial or the, the early stages of trials You'll, the volunteers that you get, because this is all voluntary, right? So um, unless they're testing it in the military, and I don't know about that, that that's not unprecedented. <laughs> that's happened before. Well, and we have a history of mental patients and prisoners and, and, and absolutely in yeah. American history. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, George, Americans in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. I remember what George W. Bush was um, in his just wonderful benevolence said that we needed to lift the restriction on testing medications and vaccinations in prison populations in order to offer them the benefit of participating. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily that didn't happen. But yeah, we I mean it's it's absolutely a, uh, you know has has happened before. But but generally we're testing it in people who are are pretty healthy and they're all adults. There's never been a trial with kids. So like I said before 10% of our cases are still pediatric. And we have um, the pediatric immune response is very, very different than the adult immune response. And so we, at this point, don't have a tool to address that. And really, until we're able to vaccinate children, we won't be fully addressing the risk of COVID in our communities. So I think, you know, your question was like, when are we going to know? <laughs> sure, uh, yeah. No, actually it was. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, and, you know, I think, I think the if the FDA advisory committee looks at all the data that's peer reviewed, all of that happens and, and they, they decide to roll this vaccine out. Honestly, whatever Fauci says, I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's kind of my, my most, one of my most trusted sources. If he wants all, all medical professionals to get this vaccine, I'm, I'm going to go do it. Um, but yeah, we won't, until we start testing it um, in folks with lots of comorbidities, um, folks who are much older, pediatrics, we really aren't going to have complete information about how our communities are going to be fully protected. You know, speaking speaking of the rollout, you know, there's communities that are more vulnerable than others. There's communities which are, you know, in poverty. There are communities who uh, live next to coal plants, and so they have like a higher higher rates of other health issues. And I mean, do you have any thoughts on as they roll out the vaccine about how it should be rolled out to these more vulnerable communities. They're like racially and economically 
you know, a hit hard, hit harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, sort of on a, an aside, you know, I was looking at the the Trump rollout plan today. I didn't read the whole thing, but I, I skimmed through the executive summary of it, um, which is publicly available. And they made all these com- they had all these conversations about how there's going to be transparency of of information between federal agencies, state agencies, tribal agencies, all these different things. Um, which they're obviously very publicly not even doing with the next administration. So I'm not exactly sure how we can take them seriously. But one of the things I would really like to see is at the at local levels in particular, but maybe at some other levels, um, some community advisory committees set up that have not only medical professionals and public health professionals, but also uh, community other community stakeholders sitting around a table a virtual table, of course, and uh, and making decisions about how this rolls out into our communities. Because like you said, uh, and this is since day one with COVID and then also of course with lots of other health issues, uh, our already marginalized communities are being hit very hard and they need to be, in order to do this in an in, in ethical, you know, patient-centered and community-centered way, they need to be sitting at the table to make these decisions about what it looks like in their communities. And, um, and I think that's, the, that's the, the best way for us to get a lot of these communities that, like I said in the, our last conversation, are very rightfully skeptical about the medical field, um, you know, medicine in general, the, the racism and, and all of that that, that is endemic. Uh, currently and historically in a lot of our systems, the only way that we're gonna get community buy-in is if we have community members sitting at that table. Um, One of the things that has been said a couple of times has been mentioned as an option is that we will have National Guard being the people who will actually be administering vaccination, which I think is a, uh, a complete disaster of a plan. Um, I think the individuals in the National Guard certainly can be taught to give a vaccination, that's fine, but, uh, but having uniformed people from outside of the community who have no stake in the community actually then administering the vaccine, I think will cause more damage. I, so, I, don't, want, I don't want to go to a National Guard. I don't want the National Guard to give me a vaccine. No, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't either. either. No. <laughs> uh, you know, and all of the the anti-vaxxers and the no maskers and the, the Trump people who already worry about things like black helicopters and, yeah. and, and blue helmets, blue, <laughs> blue helmets, all that sort of thing. That'll definitely increase their paranoia as well. Uh, yeah. You know, looking at the, the, you know, Biden, at least his PR has been like really focused on COVID. It's been on, you know, people he's going to put in the administration who like, you know, COVID is going to be, is going to be job one. I, I, I feel like <clears throat> the Monday after uh, it was announced that Biden Harris had won. That they announced that they were putting together their COVID task force, and so th- it also seems like they're putting together like not corporate hacks and not Trump lackeys, but like or or in this case it would be Biden lackeys. But it seems like they're getting actually responsible medical officials, et cetera, on. And do you think that'll have any impact on, especially around this issue around marginalized communities? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to see that they have scientists on their task, of course. This, is, this shouldn't be something that we are surprised it's, it's and excited bar, about. It's a pretty high isn't it? Real standards. <laughs> scientists doing medicine and science. Who, who, would, who would have thunk it? Um, 
I'm sort of. I'm it's like sort a press of, conference at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company or in the, <laughs> next to Fantasy Island Adult Store. <laughs> oh, um, our, our goal is to put one Four Seasons joke into every episode between now and when Trump's out of office. Excellent. Oh, yeah, excellent. Yeah. We, we need well, to get shirts from there. They're selling them now. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so I saw some joke somebody made about uh, Giuliani giving a press conference from the Rose Garden, but he accidentally showed up at the Olive Garden instead. <laughs> <laughs> it's just endless. Um, but yeah, so, so um, I think, yeah, I'm very happy to see scientists, <laughs> actual real credentialed scientists who, not just any scientists, but scientists who have infectious disease epidemiology experience yeah. and have lived in professional experience, just like Fauci in responding to these things. Um, I don't think that that alone is going to be in, in response to, you know, sort of working through the fact that our marginalized communities are hit harder. In my experience, the, the kinds of letters behind your name don't speak the, the same kind of volume in certain communities as does your lived experience with that community. So I think that's why having community advisory boards set up at a community level uh, I think would be really great because yes, you want the people with the academic experience and the research and all of that sitting at the table. And then you also want the folks who run the, you know, the local church group or the people who do, um, you know, the soccer coach or <laughs> whatever it is. You want people from that community, the stakeholders and the, and the leaders in that community to be sitting there. Um, and that's, you know, that's not me being super creative. That is something that we have known in public health for decades, that that is the most effective way to improve uh, adoption, early adoption and, and consistent adoption of public health interventions. Well, you know, the, the Black Panthers had a public health program in, in your area back in mm -hmm. 1967 or whatever for that reason, you know, so. Um, yeah, absolutely. And now it's it's the West Oakland Health Clinic is, is oh, okay. what, oh, well, what cool. came out of the Black Panther Party oh, right cool. there on on 7th Street. And uh, yeah, and I, I work very closely with them. Oh, um, how, that's that's totally awesome. That's that's really cool. Yeah, now, it's amazing. Presuming Trump does nothing, which is likely right. By the time Biden's inaugurated, you're going to we're going to have what, like another hundred thousand maybe dead or more. I mean, what can he do like immediately just to kind of, you know, triage kind of stuff, stop, stop it from being so bad, like in the short term, and then kind of move on to, to bigger issues. What would be the first thing you would do if somebody made you the czar of, of COVID tomorrow? <laughs> give you, give you the, the crown and a scepter and all that kind of stuff, a miter, you know, mm. maybe, maybe um, pink, uh, red slippers like the Pope wears. <laughs> one of the big hats. Yeah. Um, yeah, miter, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think one of the first things to do, and, and I don't know if how possible this is for him to start doing now, given his lack of communication with the Trump administration, but I would want to be talking to some of the pharmaceutical group uh, agencies and try to think, okay, so, so how do we actually ascertain what conditions need to be in place for this vaccine to be shuttled out to our communities effectively? For example, you know, the Pfizer vaccine, I don't know about Moderna, I imagine it's similar, but the Pfizer vaccine needs to be refrigerated, almost frozen. It has to be very, very cold, kept very, very cold. And it's also a two dose vaccination. So first of all, anytime you have, you have to have someone come back to do something in medicine, you get a strong, very sharp attrition rate. With vaccinations in particular, you can have up to 50% of the people never return for that second dose. 
So that's something to keep in mind in terms of, of how we expect this to look in our communities. Uh, but yeah, I think sort of getting, sitting down and thinking, okay, do we need, is there a way that we can start talking to the manufacturers of these like refrigerated units uh, that we can get out into communities to, to just hold this vaccine? Talking with, with any of the stakeholders and, and more local communities about what does the workforce look like to actually administer this vaccination? Um, you know, I've, I've been trying to talk to as much as possible folks in Alameda County about like, hey, I have all these students, I have a free a free little army of, of vaccine administrators, you know, how can we, how can we help? Um, so having those kinds of conversations as much as possible, I think would be good to start now. And then as soon as he gets into office, passing some sort, you know, freeing up funding for more testing, freeing up funding for, um, for these kinds of things, lifting the, the, the bans on the, on the CDC and the HHS and, and, and opening up transparency of information so that we can really from day one hit the ground with like this, okay, starting from now, we are going to be incredibly transparent and we are going to share with you only the best solid information. Um, it'll take a while to sort of write that, that ship. It's sort of like, you know, when you try to take a hard left in a military aircraft carrier, right? It takes a while, but, but I think you got to start from day one. You know, as we're, we're kind of, I think, moving towards the end of our time, uh, you know, we know that there's been a, there was an epidemic of COVID in the Trump White House about a month ago. Trump himself had it. Now we've, we're seeing a new epidemic amongst Trump administration campaign personnel, Mark Meadows, Corey Lewandowski have all tested positive. She, I think there's more confirmed cases of COVID amongst Trump related staff than there are valid claims of election fraud. And we also found out today that COVID caught the disease known as Donald Trump Jr. Um, <laughs> as I like to say, or I guess, so I guess Donald Trump Jr. is now asymptomatic, tested positive, asymptomatic and isolating. Uh, I mean, there's a piece here where they've been sort of promoting like no mask, it's a hoax, that that sort of thing. And, you know, it's it's been continued encouragement from this administration. And um, we also have now seen like millions, tens of millions of people voted for him and are just not, they're, you know, half the country thinks that the election was a fraud. Good portion of that thinks that COVID is 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 also like not as dire as, as the scientists, et cetera, think. And I'm and I'm just wondering, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Like this this like sort of divisiveness and how this pandemic has kind of played a role in that. That was a long question, and that, <laughs> but it just it's been on my mind a lot. And and when I was kind of prepping for this episode, I was I was thinking about that quite a bit. And then all the news even today about Donald Trump Jr., etc. Yeah, and then also Giuliani's son tested positive, and so Giuliani is quarantining, I guess, as well after exposure. <laughs> I think the White House just wanted to find a reason to get him out. You know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it was either that or son of fishing with Al Neary. So they, they decided to say his kid had COVID. After he melted on air this week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we talked about message fatigue early in the earlier in the podcast. I am so tired of hearing about this shock and amaze that the Trump administration is not paying attention to, to COVID. Um, this is, you know... Yeah, it's just it's just par for the course. It's just part of their it's part of their puppet show that they've been putting out there since the beginning. And I wish we could just 
instead of being like, oh, maybe now that Donald Trump Jr. has tested positive, maybe now there's going to be some messaging that's accurate and fact-based. No, it's not. Let's just leave him alone to quarantine on his own and, and, uh, and, you know, and get better. And, and instead, maybe let's talk about how the, the average American in this country that's exposed to and maybe contracts COVID has no health insurance and no health safety net. Even if they do have health insurance, they're not gonna have access to the kind of testing and treatment that Donald Trump Jr. has. Let's have that be the narrative. Instead of this like, what did they tweet and do they, have they changed their mind? Who cares? I don't care anymore. <laughs> Let's talk about the things that actually matter. And the thing that actually matters is that we have 2000 people dying in this country every single day from this virus. And the thing that actually matters is that we have uh, our workforce, our healthcare workforce is being asked to complete and work in, in impossible situations um, every single day. And yeah, that's what I wanna talk about. I don't, I don't wanna talk about Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> Let me, I, can I go back? I, something I forgot to follow up on um, at the beginning. Um, you said about 10% of the people who've had COVID are, are kids. I don't know what the age group is. And the American Academy of Pediatricians said there were like, I forget, 1.2 million or something. So I'm assuming 12 million, 1.2 million. That's, that's, that's the thing. Um, but, you know, I keep reading all of these and all of, you know, both left and right people saying the schools are safe and you shouldn't shut them down. And it seems like along with the holidays, schools are particularly, you know, a contentious and important issue right now. I mean, is there really any clarity on that? I mean, if, if 1.2 million kids have COVID or you know, have tested positive, then they can be infectious, right? To parents and grandparents. And so why is there seem to be this kind of almost cavalier in some cases attitude about that, you know, where I'm seeing like in the Washington Post, and New York Times, all these kind of liberal establishment people are saying, oh, you know, we've, you know, Trump was actually right. The schools are safe. They're not dangerous. Yeah. So, I mean, there is some, some data that shows that, that kids, um, well, like I said before, they're not as likely to be as acutely ill yeah. um, after they've been infected. And then there also might, there's some data that says that they might be not as infectious. They might not, the virus might not replicate as robustly uh, and then be transmissible to people around them. That doesn't mean zero though. And I think, you know, when we talk about, about schools opening, we're also talking about the, the maintenance staff, the teachers, the counselors, the administrators, the janitors, the coaches, all of these other people are showing up uh, to, to, uh, to be at schools. So I don't know. I mean, I think that having kids at home has been especially challenging for a lot of people because, um, because they, uh, you know, have to go to work and can't afford daycare or they're working from home. And I, I, I don't personally have this personal experience, but I know my sister has two young kids and she's been working from home and it sounds, it's, it's really, really hard, right? You know, trying to manage all of their lesson planning and keeping them entertained. And we don't want them to look at screens too much, but also like mom and dad have to work. So what are we, how are they gonna, you know? Uh, so I think that one of the reasons that there's been a big push to open up these schools is because it's really, really challenging to have the kids at home. I mean, we, this is a moment where we shall be recognizing how important public schools, um, public schooling is in our communities. Anecdotally, I know people who work basically four to midnight like if they're, they work in, you know, in my field in environmental nonprofits, they're working four to midnight. There's people who are basically like 
told their boss that like, I'm going to be here for about 60 or 70% of the time. And that's it. Cause I have to take care of my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so- I have, I have students who are full-time students trying to finish all of their nursing training and are, you know, have young kids and it is just absolutely incredible. <laughs> the kinds of juggling that they're having okay. to do right now. Well, as soon as there was no, you know, kind of uh, relief given other than a one-time $1,200 check, this was inevitable. You know, they, they sat on it. didn't become a campaign issue. You know, Pelosi and Biden are just as culpable, you know, about like letting this thing die and go to the side, you know, so people are, you know, have this choice, you know, schools become daycare. I have, I have like niece and nephew who teach and, you know, I'm afraid for them, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, my brother's uh, and, a teacher as well. You know, if you shut it down, then, you know, yeah. The other thing, though, I've seen is that I, I follow like mental health and suicide issues carefully. And, and it does seem that, you know, because the beginning, there was all this alarmism for people who never gave a damn about mental health and suicide in their lives. That now all of a sudden, well, if the kids aren't in school, they're going to have mental health and suicide problems. But the reality is, I don't think the numbers are actually uh, I'm sure there are very clearly a side, really bad side effects like, you know, spousal abuse and things. But I think the mental health thing, based on what I've been reading lately, probably hasn't been as bad as, as we, we feared it would be. But the reality is schools are daycare centers right now because people have to go work in these crappy jobs because they don't have mm-hmm. a check coming in and they don't have health care in a lot of cases otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the mental health concerns are something that we should be paying attention to. But again, this is this is the same kind of argument that they used in the beginning about opening up the, you know, the workforce versus COVID. It's always being presented as this either or kind yeah, of situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so so saying uh, we have to open everything up because there are these all these mental health issues. No, we don't have to do it because of mental health issues. What we need to do is provide people with mental health care yeah. because of yeah. the mental health issues. Right. Opening up the economy, I mean, that's this radical thing, right? But, um, but opening up the economy or opening up and, and getting rid of shelter in place, yeah, that might alleviate some mental health issues, but they aren't two mutually exclusive things. We can keep everything shut down. We can keep people safe from the virus and then we can provide mental health care and support that they need. That, that's, you said that, that's kind of what I was getting at, but I didn't, I went on a rant instead. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's between like austerity of the last 40 years, which has actually cut mental health care and then this sort of, gilded age that we're in this new gilded age that we've been in for the last couple of decades where we have like a lot more people in dire economic straits you know and smaller percentage of people who are like donald trump jr who can go and shelter in place and quarantine as long as he wants to it's uh it's like if this was in in a sense once a crisis like this happened it was inevitable that we would begin to like we're you know we're teetering on the brink to be honest Mm -hmm. as a society around evictions around you know, jobs around healthcare. And, and it was like inevitable that we were going to hit some sort of crisis like this that would completely leave us unable to function. And that's, that's where we're at at this point. And, and the, and the centrist Democrats, I voted for Biden. I, I actually advocated for Biden. I did GOTV for Biden, but like, also it's like, it's not going to be the, it's not going to change that much. Yep. Well, yeah. Know, we have to keep pushing. Yeah. You know, one of the, the uh, things that the exit polls are showing is that in, in communities where COVID was was really bad, people voted for Trump overwhelmingly, which seems counterintuitive, but uh, they didn't want to be laid off. They didn't want to be shut down. They wanted to go to work to make money. So, you know, this guy got rewarded for ignoring this this massive pandemic and, and not providing any kind of relief other than a one time twelve hundred dollar check. 
which is really terrifying that people have kind of been conditioned after this neoliberal regime to to accept that you know these are my options i either go to work in this toxic environment where i might get sick and die or i stay home with nothing and i'll have mental health you know so these are the like you said these are the binary options you have which is really terrifying one last thing which is kind of a set aside because i think of like people like scott atlas and other and i know stanford has rebuked him is there any kind of like medical ethical board that can like go after some of these people down the road because you know some of these people it would seem to me have violated the, the the medical oath, you know, the Hippocratic oath, just in the stuff they're doing, and essentially, you know, dissuading people from getting medical care, discouraging it, and you know, giving them this really false information that they have to know is is false. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm Sicilian. I'm vindictive. We hold grudges. So I just you know. <laughs> You know, go leave a horse head in someone's in someone's I, bed. Is I, that what's going to happen? Glad, I, would, I would be <laughs> glad to do that. Absolutely. Except we love horses. Um, no injury to horses. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't advocate uh, that on green and red. Toy right? horses. You know, you yeah. saw horse. You cut it yeah. off. You know, yeah. sawdust. Carousel, like stuff. a carousel. Yeah. Yeah, like a carousel horse. There you go. Um. Yeah. So I I can't there. There are definitely lots of medical ethical advisory boards and 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 you know professional medical organizations that that come up with these standards and guidelines. I don't see re- true, uh, you know, any kind of like true litigation or anything coming up against folks because of just the the nature that medical litigation sort of how it happens in our country. There needs to be, I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if there might be at some point some class action suits where like one clinician who was really pushing hydroxychloroquine at one point after all the literature came out that it wasn't helpful. And then, you know, Brown Mills and, and Williams law firm gets together and says, hey, have you been hurt by COVID and blah, blah, blah. And then we get <laughs> hundred families who's, who's uh who are treated by a certain practice who advocated hydroxychloroquine, that might happen, yes. But I don't see that there, um, you know, any other kind of reprimand for people who are sort of the, the medical talking heads that are out on, you know, saying these things on on the news organizations. I don't, I don't see that happening. Um, yeah, I don't so know. It looks like it looks like we're gonna have to do the horse heads then. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, maybe metaphorically, Folks. metaphorically. <laughs> You've been listening to. I, Go ahead. Yes, yes, please. Sorry, Scott. I just wanted to say one quick thing about air travel because we didn't really get into that during the during the conversation, yes. and I think that's particularly relevant as we move <laughs> into the holidays um, because it's a very confusing thing. I've had to do a lot of research on it, um, and of course, we talked about the holidays and how that feels super uncomfortable to change your plans around that. Um, I have an article, and I can send it to you so you can cite it in your in your notes, but I found this article that talks a little bit about how um, air exchange happens on planes. And there's some studies that do show that because it is perpetually exchanged, you know, and filtered in these HEPA filters, that it can decrease the risk of airborne um, transmission of airborne viruses by like 63% after one circulation, and then it's Mm -hmm. continually circulated, right? So that's, that's really great news. Um, but the only thing that, that really reduces a risk to zero in this, these studies, uh, about airborne transmission is if a person is sitting 15 seats away from another person mm. on an airplane. So I think, you know, there is some social distancing that has been happening on airplanes at this point. Um, 
I think they're calling it comfort seating or something like that, which is kind of really funny because it's like, well, then the opposite of that is that previously we had all discomfort seating. <laughs> it's seating um, for bourgeois people who can page so they don't get exposed to other people's exactly. droplets, right? Right. Um, but I, I, yeah, I just want, I just wanted to bring that up because I think that uh, in our, in all of our individual decision-making around, around travel around the holiday with the holiday seasons, or if you have to travel for work or, or whatever uh, to go visit a family member, ailing family member or something like that. Um, yeah. Social distancing is still our strongest tool, 100%. And you cannot do that the way the airlines are, are structuring their flights these days, even when you're wearing a mask. So um, yeah, just wanted to put that out there for, for everyone who's, who's wrestling with that particular issue this holiday season. The first time we talked to you, I think was in April. And this is, is, it's horrifying because it's not obviously not your fault, but this is no more optimistic and hopeful than it was then. you know, it's probably worse actually. So anyway, thank you. I was, not, not for that, but, but thank you. So <laughs> I was going to say, folks, you heard it here. Not, I'm sure you didn't hear it here first, but stay home for the holidays, both Thanksgiving <laughs> and Christmas. We love all of you, all of our audience. So please stay home. And if you're out somewhere, wear a mask. Uh, you've been listening to Professor Sarah Coster, Samuel Mary University community health worker, nurse, family nurse practitioner on the Green and Red podcast. If you want to follow us on our many social media channels, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then also go to our YouTube page where you can see our lovely faces and hit that little subscribe button in the, in the corner because Ben Shapiro has over a million subscribers and we have 60. And so we need many more. <laughs> so please follow the Green and Red podcast on YouTube. And then if you want to make a donation, go to our website, greenandred.org, greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button or the donate button, whatever it is. And then if you want to become a patron and be a regular donor, go to our Patreon page, green, uh, patreon.com, greenredpodcast, excuse me, patreon.org backslash greenredpodcast. Got ahead of myself there. Uh, and it's been great talking and everyone have a good safe holiday week. Talk to you later. Bye.